Good morning. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and on the World Wide Web at KPOO.com. This is Prison Focus Radio. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. beautiful people. If you are new to this program, Prison Focus Radio, that was X-Clan with Prison. 
Uh, you are tuned in to KPOO San Francisco 89.5, and I am your host, Nube Brown of Prison Focus Radio. Oh, and you are possibly live streaming on KPOO.com. We are going to continue our conversation with Joka Hashima Jinsai um, and his uh, indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex concept by Abdul Olubala Shakur. Uh, but I want to remind you before we get started that we are in a fund drive. We are trying to raise $75,000 by the end of the year. This is it, people. This is the last month. I know you will come through. Don't know where we are exactly, but keep those donations, generous donations coming to the baddest, most beautiful uh, Black-owned, Black-run uh, radio station here in San Francisco, again, KPOO San Francisco 89.5. You can, of course, go online at uh, to kpoo.com if you want to uh, pay by credit card or donate by, um, by PayPal, but you can also send in a check. You just make the check payable to KPOO, and the address is P.O. Box 156650, San Francisco, California, 94115. Yes, your generosity is always greatly appreciated, and nowhere else will you get that's this amazing programming, amazing music, um, commentary, uh, music, ideas, uh, voices that you will not hear anybody else, and uh, going for, I think, something like 70 years. We've been going a long time here. Um, could be in the 50s. Um, don't know exactly, but make those donations and keep it going for another 50 or 70. Either one of those do does well. All right. I want to read to you, uh, we are in indictment, uh, on the indictment count five, which is um, the conspiracy to maintain a domestic torture program. I have such the privilege of being able to speak with Hashima on a regular basis so that we can um, go through this um, indictment with a fine-tooth comb. You can get a copy for yourself by right now going to Amazon.com. Again, it's the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. There on Amazon.com, you will find other um, uh, publications, other works by Joka Hashima Jinsai and Abdul Olubala Shakur. All right. Here is indictment count five, conspiracy to maintain a domestic torture program, and then we will hear from Hashima himself. CDC small R employees have engaged in a pattern and practice of systematic torture to coerce information, suppress politically progressive ideas and attitudes, and do permanent psychological damage to targeted prisoners. CDC Small R has maintained a domestic torture program in dungeon cells, strip cells, and shoe units, security housing units, for well over a century. The primary function of the program is to inflict such continuous physical and psychological torture, pain, and suffering on those subject to these units that their minds actually break, and they either submit completely to the dictates of the state, CDC Small R, no matter how contrary to their interests or basic human rights those dictates may be, go mad, or in the case of those who resist indefinitely, to serve as living examples to the rest of the prisoner population of the state's absolute power over their bodies, much as crucifixions served the Romans. In the case of the dungeon cells, prisoners would be stripped naked and forced into a urine and feces-covered stone cell with no light, a hole in the floor as a toilet, no running water, and nothing else but the stench and the darkness. A bare mattress would be issued at last count and taken away 
again first thing in the morning. No linen or clothing were provided in these cold, dank, and filthy stone boxes because CDC Smaller employees wanted to ensure prisoners were subject to the perpetual indignity of nakedness and could not escape through suicide. The department's regulations and state law on dungeon cells stipulated that, quote, prisoners shall not be housed for more than 10 days inside one. However, for those who maintained their dignity, sanity, and principles characterized as defiant by staff, or depending on the level of sadism staff on that watch expressed, prisoners were frequently removed from the dungeon cell and placed in a holding cage for one hour on the 10th day, then put put back into the dungeon cell for another 10. In the most severe use of this torture chamber, one subject, a new African revolutionary nationalist, was confined there for a record six months. The physical and psychological toll of such torture chambers is so severe, the isolation so intense, and contrary to human mental wellness, that many simply went mad. The introduction of security housing units, shoes, into Old Folsom and San Quentin Adjustment Center, the AC, was the precursor to California's modern torture units at Pelican Bay, Corcoran, and elsewhere. These units, in contrast to the medieval brutality of the dungeon cells, were clinically designed to break men's minds and export the informant psychosis to their communities. That's in quotes. Informant psychosis to their communities. The conceptual framework for the shoe design finds its origins in a meeting of prison wardens and social scientists held in Washington, D.C. in 1962. There, Dr. Edgar Schein delivered his findings in a speech titled Man Against Man, Brainwashing, and the concept of the modern super control, sorry, supermax control unit was born. In addressing the group, Dr. Schein stated, I would like you to think of brainwashing not in terms of politics, ethics, or morals, but in terms of the deliberate changing of human behavior and attitudes by a group of men who have relatively complete control over the environment in which the captive populace lives. Unquote. Its political intent was clear from the outset. Former warden Ralph Aaron of one of the first Supermac lockup units, Marion Supermac, stated the purpose of the shoe was to, quote, control revolutionary attitudes in the prison system and society at large, unquote. What Dr. Shine and his cohorts provided was its function. To be effective, the new techniques he described would require a new type of environment, what, one which could alter the very foundations of one's perception of reality. For this, they would adopt Dr. Levinson's sensory deprivation prison unit design and a form of Skinnerian operant conditioning called learned helplessness. This last technique is a key factor in the California State Domestic Torture Program in both its validation-based indeterminate shoe confinement and debriefing process. Learned helplessness is a systemic process of conditioning designed to crystallize in the imprisoned victim's mind that he or she has no control over the regulation of his or her existence, that they are completely dependent on the state and its guards for the necessities of life, that he, she is helpless and must submit to the state's power and control in order to survive. Because this type of forced submission runs contrary to human consciousness, a linear thought divergence occurs into two options, resistance or escape. The program is designed to apply maximum punitive coercion against resistance from the outset, physical removal from general population and confinement to solitary, sensory deprivation, utilization of informants, collaborators, 
or collaborators and agent provocateurs to erode trust amongst those in like circumstances, punishing uncooperative attitudes, prohibiting collective thought and expression, while simultaneously employing group punishment, punitive property restrictions, arbitrary punishments, etc., etc. I'm just going to stop here for one second because I want you to understand that while this is taking place um, in this very condensed and controlled environment of the prison, these same kinds of uh, practices are being employed out here in just a different manner. But it is the same kind of control um, and psychological damage that's being perpetrated against us um, through colonial capitalist imperialism. All right, those capable of indefinite resistance through ideological political development or force of will, like victims of crucifixion left to rot on crosses during the Roman Empire, served as powerful deterrents to those of lesser psychological resistance. These less developed subjects in the shoe, or those still in general population, confronted with the ever-present specter of indefinite shoe confinement, were conditioned to avoid resistance and instead explored the second option, escape. Though Marion Control Unit was among the first prisons in the Shine Levinson Skinnerian torture system, the most infamous by far is California's premier control unit, Pelican Bay Shoe. Because one of the central functions of these new control units was to leverage torture to coerce information from its victims, Pelican Bay Shoe made its escape option clear parole, debrief, or die. As a result of the undue influence of the PISE, prison industrial slave complex on the legislative, political, and to a degree, cultural apparatus of the state and nation, most validated shoe prisoners are serving mandatory minimums, enhanced sentences, or board of prison terms based in determinate terms, and their very confinement in the shoe is prohibitive to their parole. If you, quote, if you want a parole date, you probably want to think about debriefing, unquote, is a common statement from the parole board governors to shoe prisoners before them. This increases the psychological pressure on those already weakened by the conviction that they've been abandoned by and isolated from society, and only through submission and subservience can they be socially accepted as human beings. This form of, quote, escape, known as debriefing, in essence becoming an informant or agent of the state, is consistent with points 7, 8, and 9 of Dr. Shine's behavior modification method. Number 7, exploration of opportunities. 8, convincing prisoners they can trust no one. 9, treating those who are willing to collaborate in far more lenient ways than those who are not. That beatings, assaults, gladiator-style matches, and murder are also liberally employed in shoe torture units only exacerbates the attacks on the nervous equipment of those subject to indefinite solitary confinement. That indefinite or even relatively short-term solitary confinement constitutes torture is undeniable and something the U.S. and the state of California have known since the 1870s, see Inri Medley. However, With lobbying efforts by guard unions like California's CCPOA and the nationwide march towards the expansion of control units we've witnessed over the previous 30 years, the clinical approach to domestic torture has taken on an almost Auschwitz-style tone in its matter-of-fact use. Title 18 USC S2340 and UN Convention Against Torture Article 1 Section 2 defines torture as, quote, any act 
by which severe pain or suffering, whether physical or mental, is intentionally inflicted on a person for such purposes as obtaining from him or her or third person information or a confession, punishing him or her for an act he or she or a third party has committed or is suspected of having committed, or intimidating or coercing a third person. Unquote. This definition is synonymous with the purpose and function of California's shoe units and supermax control units across the nation that the U.S. has uh, preserved for itself a legal exemption for domestic torture has no bearing on its criminal nature. Title 18 S2340 is enforceable only outside the U.S., so any acts of torture as defined in S2340 committed within the U.S., are not crimes under U.S. law unless they are accompanied by severe physical injury. Torture is a crime. Coercion through torture to elicit information to further a criminal enterprise is a greater crime. Leveraging scientists, psychologists, and structural engineers to methodically strip away the minds and humanity of captive victims to transform them into active tools of the state is evil. Conceptually intended for exclusive use on politically progressive prisoners, like imprisoned Black Panther Party members, American Indian Movement, Weather Underground, Black Guerrilla Family, Black Liberation Army members, and Puerto Rican independent groups, etc., etc. Instead, almost from the outset, the state sought to intertwine criminal prison-based organizations, street gangs, and organized crime outfits with these revolutionary formations within their criminological lexicon, characterizing all of them as gangs, or more recently, security threat groups, STGs. This, like every aspect of their domestic torture program, was a calculated measure. Here, the staff sought to criminalize legitimate revolutionary formations and political progressives through the simple turn of a phrase, a strategic act of libel and slander encoded into their very regulations on gang validation and indeterminate shoe confinement. In an instant, anyone validated, this is in quotes, as a quote gang member, by quote law, became a gang member, no matter if they were a political prisoner or a political gangster. This served a dual purpose. It dehumanized anyone the state labeled a gang member in the eyes of the public while providing a false basis for the denial of the existence of political prisoners in America, made plausible by three decades of PISC lobbying and media propaganda. This recasting of progressive political ideologues as gang members acts as a manufactured regulatory loophole which allows CDC small R officials to interfere with and blatantly repress the constitutional rights of these prisoners. CUS see First Amendment, etc., via threats, intimidation, and coercion under color of law, an equally blatant violation of state and federal hate crime statutes. That CDC small r has used the distance of these torture units as a means to influence public opinion in support of prison expansion and draconian sentencing laws is further evidence of the subversion, subversion of justice to advance the particular economic interests of CDC small R employees engaged in this racketeering enterprise. This century-long pattern practice and expansion of the use of domestic torture units and the use of systemic torture techniques to coerce information from and retaliate against political prisoners for exercising their constitutional rights 
all in furtherance of an ongoing racketeering enterprise violates Title 18 S1961, S1952, USC First Amendment, Eighth Amendment, and Fourteenth Amendments, Civil Code S52.1, Government Code S11135, S8.12, and Penal Code S sorry, Penal Code S422.77 and Title 18 S2340. All right, for those of you that have been listening to this show uh, regularly, I can't apologize um, if you have heard Count 5 before. Because un- and until we are outside of these prisons either protesting or we are doing mass call-ins and demanding that our people be set free or whatever other actions that we need to be taking to make sure that not only are our people that are inside coming home, but that we are closing off any entrances to our young people being funneled back in or funneled into this sick system, we need to keep hearing about these uh, counts of this indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex. So, um, but I will beg your indulgence and thank you so much for for returning. If you have heard this before um, and if you are new, um, I hope that you will get the book and uh, read it uh, yourself and stay with us for the next counts and uh, go back uh, to um, also listen to the previous um, episodes of Prison Focus Radio. Um, Okay, here on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. All right, we are going to be hearing from Hashima in just a minute, but I am now going to bring forth um, a voices from Abolition Today from Max Parthas and Yusuf Hassan. They are the co-hosts of Abolition Today, which airs every Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. These brothers have done so much for the end legal slavery in America movement. And um, they were integral, Max Parthas especially, in the work that both of them have done with the uh, abolition, Abolish Slavery National Network to get uh, five states to bring to the ballot um, anti-slavery language to be removed from their state constitution. And four out of those five states um, uh, passed Uh, millions of voters came together to say, yes, we want to remove slavery from our state constitutions and begin um, the healing uh, from legal slavery taking place within our prisons here in America. All right, so stay with us. I will be right back. We are going to be um, hearing again from... Uh, Yusuf Hassan, Max Parthas of Abolition Today. This is courtesy of Abolition Today, and you can listen to um, that show at abolitiontoday.org. All right, we are now going to listen to Yusuf Hassan, co-host with Max Parthas of Abolition Today, talk about what happened just after the enactment of the 13th Amendment in 1865. And so you all know that the 13th Amendment, uh, in all intents and purposes, uh, took us or took anyone that was uh, subjected to incarceration. You know, they went from slavery, you know, chattel slavery to uh, imprisoned slavery just with the 13th Amendment. So 
as I'm going through, I'm just going to sort of like take a historical point of view from the 13th Amendment. I'm going to go through it quickly. You know, I'm not going to get into my regular lecture like I normally would because we'll be sitting here all day. But some of the key things that happened right after the enactment of the 13th Amendment, which was December 1865, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed by Congress. And U.S. Supreme Court Justice Potter wrote when they reviewed it in the U.S. Supreme Court that Congress has the power under the 13th Amendment rationally to determine what are the badges and incidents of slavery and the authority to translate that determination into effective legislation. So from day one, it was established that Congress is the ones who uh, determines what is the 13th Amendment, how it should be applied federally and across the country. And so some of the first cases that were established dealing with the uh, 13th Amendment, one of the first uh, major cases to come out was the case called the Slaughterhouse Cases. And this is from 1873, and this was in Louisiana. The case involved a group of private butchers, blah, 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 blah. It was basically a labor issue. And they were saying, you know, since we can only uh, conduct our labor in New Orleans that would basically, you know, if they, they claimed involuntary servitude. And so the court ruled that the main purpose of the 13th Amendment was, was to abolish African slavery and its incidents. But then the court went on to say that the slaughterhouse case did not consider prison labor as an incident of slavery. So it made it, it made it crystal clear at that point that prison labor is not slavery. This is what the courts would determine. It says once a person fell under the exception clause, because at that time they called it the punishment clause, the state is justified in depriving the person of his life and liberty. But then doing further research, there was a case in Virginia called Ruffin versus Commonwealth. And it said, you know, for the time that a person is doing their, uh, their service or serving their sentence, in the penitentiary, he is in a state of penal servitude to the state. He has, as a consequence of his time, of his crime, not only forfeited his liberty, but all his personal rights except those which the law and the humanity accords to him. He is, for the time being, the slave of the state. This is a court saying this. He is civiliter mortuus. And as a state, if he has any, is administered like that of a dead man. The Bill of Rights is a declaration of general principles given uh, general principles to govern a society of free men and not a convicted felon than men civilly dead. So they're making it clear that the Bill of Rights does not apply to convicted felons or someone that's considered civilly dead. Such men are the slaves of the state undergoing punishment for heinous crimes committed against the laws of the land. While in this state of penal servitude, they must be subject to the regulations of the institution. Uh, while they are inmates of the laws of the state to whom the service is due an expiation of their crimes. Hey, you see, one sure. Before you go on, I just wanted to make a couple notes about what you just read there. First, it was only six years after the ratification of the 13th Amendment. So it wasn't like the 13th Amendment and slavery was not fresh in their minds. And they immediately stated that if you're an inmate, you are basically a, uh, a slave of the state. Not even basically, that's what they said. They said it, clearly said it. <laughs> and it's as if you were a dead man. So uh, you have suffered 
civil death and you're not entitled to rights, only the rights to which the law gives you. And that's where we're at right now in the United States. Thank you. I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up, Max, because here's some other things that they, so they made another distinction. They made a distinction of what happens when a person violates a law or violates uh, rules within a prison. And so they categorized it as whether or not it was a felony. If it wasn't a felony, then they said uh, it is unquestionably in the power of the state to which its penal servitude is due to prescribe through its legislation uh, the mode of punishment as well as the manner of his trial. If he commits an offense not amounting to a felony, the superintendent is vested by law with authority to punish him by stripes, meaning whipping, or the iron mash, or the gag, or the dungeon. If he commits an offense in which, which in law amounts to a felony, then he has the privilege of a trial by jury, a court of justice, to which special jurisdiction is given for that purpose. So this really established also the law stating that, you know, they can carry out their own punishments within the, within the prison system. So they're a slave of the state. This is all mentioned in the same case. They're a slave of the state, and they can be disciplined in a manner that the state saw fit, except in cases that they committed a felony, some of murder, things of that nature. Then it has to go out to the courts. Yusuf, I will continue to interrupt you throughout just to add Yeah, a little... anytime, jump in. And if anybody has any knowledge yeah. on any of these topics, please jump in. Well, uh, what I want to, again, connect it to today, where, for instance, here in South Carolina, the men who were behind bars supporting the strike, the nationwide strike, used uh, cell phones, uh, contraband, and they shared via social media. And the prison gave them one year for every post. Some men got 30 years, other men got 40 years for the post. They didn't go to court for this. The prison decided what the punishment was and gave people life sentences for social media posts. Absolutely. And here in California, men were put in solitary confinement for decades. Again, the kind of solitary confinement security housing units up in Pelican Bay and in Corcoran Shoe that were meant to break them simply because of their revolutionary ideas, the books they were reading, the art that they were creating, the language they were speaking, the education that they were trying to uh, give to themselves to know of their true history here in this country and before that they before they were taken um, stolen from their homelands of Africa. Um, so here in California, um, that's where the hunger strikes grew out of, the California hunger strikes. From 2011 to 2013, it took three hunger strikes to finally reach 30,000 people participating in ending indefinite solitary confinement, which is still used today and is a form of punishment um, that even after 14 days is considered torture by the UN Human Rights Council um, on torture and um, and these men, um, new African revolutionary nationalists, simply because of their ideologies and uh, their political um, activities, um, were subjected to 10, 20, 30, um, and close to 40 years of physical and psychological tortured terms set by prison officials, guards, uh, not by the courts. All right, before we hear from Hashima, we are going to listen to one of his recommendations, Winter in America, 
by Gil Scott Heron. From the channel to the nation, we'd like to do a song for you about the larger picture. There's only one season lately. There used to be an agreement between the seasons that they would all come and stay for three months and then go to wherever seasons go when they're not where we are. Lately, there has been no spring, no summer, and no fall. Politically and philosophically and psychologically, there has only been the season of ice. It is a season of frozen dreams and frozen nightmares, a scene of frozen progress and frozen ideas, frozen aspirations and inspirations. They call the season winter. We call the song Winter in America. to Joka Hashima Jinsai on count number five in the indictment of the state and the prison industrial slave complex. Only in the most extreme cases do they interfere with the operation of prisons. And the reason why they say that is, uh, as the court, the Supreme Court has stated, on multiple cases, they say the same thing in the Madrid, the Madrid case, is they don't want to second guess uh, uh, prison officials because they're the experts, quote unquote experts. 
rooted in the culture of systemic abuse throughout uh, the history of prisons and imprisonment in the United States. Um, this is particularly true as it relates to solitary confinement. You got to understand, since the 1800s, in the Henry Medley case, courts have always known uh, that uh, solitary confinement is torture. They knew that. They, uh, just the reason why they banned it and outlawed it way back in 1819. Because <laughs> when the Henry Medley case wow. settled, uh, you have an unprecedented body of work, um, both medical, uh, psychological, and sociological that demonstrates that this is torture and it severely damages and places a typical hardship on those subjected to solitary confinement. But, when this is following the Bush era, when Bush and the Central Intelligence Agency, um, following the war on terror, introduced things like uh, the Gray Book and the White Book, which are interrogation tactics, um, they came from somewhere. Right. And you got to realize this harkens back to a meeting of wardens back in the 1970s. Um, they met to discuss a paper that was written by Dr. Henry Levinson. And it was called Brainwash, Man Against Man, oh. Brainwashing. And uh, it introduced a new concept in imprisonment, and particularly control. It was the birth of the control unit. Um, one of the wardens that was present for that meeting was Ralph Aaron. You know who Ralph Aaron is? Mm -hmm. Ralph Aaron was the warden of Marion State Prison. Oh, yes, right, of course. Yeah, sorry, I did. Yes. Mm -hmm. and uh, following uh, the successful introduction of the template for the Supermax Prison, which was Marion, um, the boxcar sales in Marion State Prison, they asked, uh, a, a reporter asked Ralph Aaron what was the purpose of solitary from Supermax Prisons. He said it was control revolutionary attitudes in the prison system and society at large. That was his purpose. So, the first use for solitary confinement was against uh, former members of the Black Liberation Army, Black Panther Party, Black Red Family, in the federal system in Marion State Prison after the Marion Uprising. Um, it was used to house them indefinitely in solitary confinement. The technique that was utilized in imagining the supermax or shoe concept, the cell structure and the concept itself of indefinite solitary confinement was three things. The physical structure of the cell was to be sterile, meaning is is the very bare minimums of what is considered humane. So you get a cell, you get a bed and a toilet. Right. Um, they wanted to keep it as clean and sterile as possible to and as uniform as possible. So it almost presented this uh, uh, physical serility to your environment, um, no matter where they placed you at within a shoe or within a supermax prison. The second thing was Skinnerian operant conditioning. Skinnerian operant conditioning is a psychological technique that's designed to peel back layers of your mind to where you, the 
have a that, that word for it called learned helplessness. Right. Oh, God. Yeah. Learned helplessness is a, a psychological technique which systematically cuts off all of the normal connections you have in social life. And you believe that your entire existence, your very being, is dependent upon the state and prison guards, state and general prison guards in particular. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. You can't even eat unless they bring you food. You can't, you can't wipe your butt unless they give you toilet paper. You can't wash your body unless they decide in their benevolence to give you a bar of soap. So these most basic human uh, functions eating, um, your waste, your hygiene, these things that are in your minds central to uh, personhood are placed into the hands of somebody else. You have no control of them. Okay. And then they have uh, uh, scenario operating conditioning, um, which is the third mechanism. It's the first one, I mean, second one being learned helplessness. The second one being Skinnerian operant condition is you place the maximum amount of psychological and sociological pressure on those who resist, but at the same time giving progressive benefits to those who cooperate or or collaborate with the state. They develop a process called debriefing. Debriefing is basically becoming an informant or a tool of the state where you denounce your former affiliations or ideology and you say, I submit completely to you and I'll say anything you want and I'll write it, sign my name to it as a confession. That's another aspect of that. You have to inform other people. Meaning you have to, let's say you don't Mm -hmm. know nothing because this is what was was real prevalent in the state of California. Right. Especially as it relates to black revolutionary nationalists. They weren't, they're not criminals. So there was no criminal activity that someone trying to debrief could inform on. So had to manufacture shit, they had to make shit up. So what they would do is they would ask the uh, debriefing officer or IGI officer, what do you want me to say? And they would fill out a narrative. This is what I want you to say. And they, they would try to tailor that narrative to the individual giving the narrative, all right, in terms of location and whoever was around. You say they say you say they did this. You say they said this. You say you've seen this. You say you this, and that person will say that, and they'll take that statement. That person will sign his name to it, okay? And this person has to, at the same time, incriminate himself, at least to some degree, in something. Right, right. Oftentimes, there's nothing to incriminate yourself in. <laughs> right. You understand what I'm saying? Right, right. So. What state found that was a barrier for the function of supermax prison, which was the current revolutionary attitude. So they began to criminalize things that were not criminal. Books, Swahili, uh, particular political ideologies, um, particular political views, um, political authors. So if you were in a position of a book on artwork, which, as you know, (laughs) happened to me. Exactly. On several occasions. sought to express African culture, African language, um, uh, socialism, uh, anything that had to do with George Jackson, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, uh, uh, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, um, anything that had to do with revolutionary politics, 
this was all considered a threat to the safety of the security institution and a crime. So things that were not criminal under the guise of prison uh, 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 prison monitors and, and censors became criminal. Okay. So association right. with certain individuals who held certain political ideas was criminalized. So this is how they were able to attach the word gang or security threat group, what they call the STG, mm-hmm. to legitimate political activity and criminalize it. Okay, so now they have a basis upon which these confidential informants or these guys who are who have been been broken psychologically to debrief and provide information. Okay, you're not doing nothing, you know they're not providing information. Like take me for example. Uh, one in 2008 when they denied me inactive status during my inactive review, which were basically the sham reviews. They just they uh, IGI write up a couple of one twenty eights, which were called ten uh, thirties confidential informant chronos. Okay, and they'll say this confidential informant said this, this confidential informant said that, and they'll check a couple of boxes, and all they need is two of them. Two of them will do, three is better. So they usually come with three of those and maybe a debrief. There it is. You ain't getting out to shoot for another six years. Okay. So they did this repeatedly all the way up to the hunger strikes. So in my case, um, they stated, uh, Denham provided me with books by George Jackson and uh, Malcolm X. He's providing BG, you consider this BGF education. He's providing BGF education. And, and this is violate section 3006 of Title 15, which is a criminal act. And uh, so we'll maintain this as one point towards this validation of the member of Black Royal Family and internal true status. Okay, so they'll do that. All right. Now, mind you, let me just be clear about this. Sorry, right? I just want to reiterate this for the listening <clears throat> audience. This is, these are rules set forth by CDCR. This is not coming yes. down from. The, 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 the Supreme no, it's not Court, it's not coming down no. from anybody. This is coming from inside. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's called the California uh, uh, California Correctional Rules, mm-hmm. or CCR, mm-hmm. Title 15. And that's basically the rules that CDCR makes for the operation of prisons. And, but and, this, so, and this is, comes from the 13th Amendment. Exactly. It actually originates... The, the power to legislate um, these types of uh, insane, <laughs> I can't use the word laws, but these insane statutes um, derives this power directly from the 13th Amendment, which states there should neither be slavery nor involuntary servitude in the United States, save you be duly convicted of a crime. So, in other words, if you're a prisoner, you're a slave. So, these are slave codes, right. for lack of a better term. Right. These are the codes and regulations they utilize to govern the conduct or misconduct of what the state considers slaves of the state. Right. All right. So. Sorry. Yeah, just okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> guys like me were considered rebellious slaves. And we were considered that because we would criticize um, the social policies of both this nation, which um, was is responsible for. Uh, systemic oppression and uh, inequality in most every area of people activity and particularly the prison industrial
slave complex and the school to poverty prison pipeline, which is responsible for fueling its expansion in social life in America. All right, I'm just going to pipe in here with um, a trifecta of evil decisions that our governor, Governor Newsom, has made regarding uh, the freedom of our new African revolutionary nationalists uh, who we would like very much to be out here uh, working with us to empower and uplift and uh, contribute to the healing of our communities. So Governor Newsom, when, uh, after many years of the American Friends uh, Services uh, Committee, worked to remove confidential information um, as a tool for CDC small r to use against our new African revolutionaries and our prisoners in general, um, our governor vetoed uh, the use of confidential information to be used against our people inside. Then, some months, I don't, I'm, I'm not going in for the dates. The fact is that our, our governor uh, then vetoed the Mandela Act to, which was meant to abolish the use of solitary confinement. And now, his third evil decision is to sell to the try to sell to the public that we are somehow a freedom state because we have enshrined in our state constitution reproductive rights for women. No, Governor Newsom. Freedom means no slavery. So don't be fooled, people. This is how patriarchy, this is how white supremacy, which is really a pathology, capitalism, imperialism works, somehow can, trying to convince us that because women are guaranteed their reproductive rights, which is something that really shouldn't be legislated anyway, somehow equates to freedom while we have millions in, millions of people enslaved in our prisons. Let's just, okay, and in California, we have hundreds of thousands of people enslaved, including children. And when we had the opportunity to remove, just remove the slavery language from our constitution, which would meet, would set us on the course of dismantling slavery our governor said, no, we can't have that. It's too expensive to end slavery in California. Do not be fooled. That's not freedom. That's slavery on our watch in 2022. All right, beautiful people. We are getting to the end of our show. Um, this has been an excerpt of a conversation with Joka Hishima Jinsai, so we will have to get back to that next week. This is an ongoing a series as we get through and talk about in depth um, the indictment of the state and its prison industrial slave complex and the ramifications of it in our daily lives. 
in the meantime, uh, stay with us. Come and join us every Thursday at 11 a.m. here on Prison Focus Radio on KPOO San Francisco 89.5. And don't forget to make your generous donations to KPOO. This December 5th, um, in a Department 16, 8.30 a.m., that is a Monday, we are going to be supporting Jeff Walker in the courtroom of Judge Fleming's um, your public presence is powerful. So if you can show up to 850 Bryant Street in San Francisco, December 5th, that's a Monday, Department 16 in Judge Fleming's courtroom to support Jeff Walker, please do so. Also, immediately following that at 930, we are going to be supporting our beautiful brother, uh, Clyde Jackson, and that will be taking place also on December 5th, starting at 930 uh, to support him and his uh, resentencing hearing. Again, 9.30 a.m., December 5th, um, at 850 Bryant Street in San Francisco. All right, and we will give you a little, uh, some uh, more details on that on another uh, social media platform. All right, we are going to end this segment with another selection of music by Joka Hashima Jinsai and something that y'all are very familiar with, Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up. Oh, and don't let me forget to remind you to visit two places, California Prison Focus at www.prisons.org and San Francisco Bayview National Black Newspaper at www.sfbayview.com. There you, on both of those platforms, you can immerse yourself in the incredible history and um, the current commentary on what is taking place within our California prisons um, hearing directly from the people inside. Also, save the date, December 7th, Wednesday, December 7th, from 6 to 9 p.m. at the Joyce Gordon Gallery at 406 14th Street, Oakland, California. Um, Minister King of the co-director of California Prison Focus and founder of Cage Universal will be um, co-hosting with the new San Francisco Bay Views editor-in-chief, William Palmer. Uh, both of them will be co-hosting the fourth annual Ratcliffe Awards Night, again at Joyce Gordon Gallery in Oakland. Save the date for December 7th. And lastly, don't let me forget that this is a theme for Liberate Our Elders. There is going to be um, a panel discussion, um, plenty of hosts, um, and sp rather sponsors for this um, awards night. Again, fourth annual. Um, all right. So get ready for work week with Steve Seltzer, and we will see you next week. Um, and another selection, we are going to go out with another selection by Joka Hashima Jinsai with Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Uh -huh.